Hello, everybody. This is Margaret Harris in Geneva on this Monday afternoon, July 13, welcoming you to today's World Health Organization press briefing on COVID-19. We have with us, as always, the WHO Director General, Dr. Tedros, and Dr. Mike Ryan, Executive Director of our Emergencies Program, and Dr. Maria Van Kerkhoff, Technical Lead for COVID-19. We have a hard stop at 10 minutes past five, but I, we will do our utmost to ask all your questions. Dr. Tedros will first give you an update. Then when Dr. Tedros has finished his opening remarks, I'll open the meeting to questions. So now, without further ado, I will hand over to Dr. Tedros. Dr. Tedros, you have the floor. Thank you, thank you, Margaret. Uh, good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. Yesterday, 230,000 cases of COVID-19 were reported to WHO. Almost 80% of those cases were reported from just 10 countries, and 50% come from just two countries. Although the number of daily deaths remains relatively stable, there is a lot to be concerned about. All countries are at risk of the virus, as you know, but not all countries have been affected in the same way. There are roughly four situations playing out across the world at the moment. The first situation is countries that were alert and aware. They prepared and responded rapidly and effectively to the first cases. As a result, they have so far avoided large outbreaks. Several countries in the Mekong region, the Pacific, the Caribbean, and Africa fit into that category. Leaders of those countries took command of the emergency and communicated effectively with their populations about the measures that had to be taken. They pursued a comprehensive strategy to find, isolate, test, and care for cases, and to trace and quarantine contacts, and were able to suppress the virus. The second situation is countries in which there was a major outbreak that was brought under control through a combination of strong leadership and populations adhering to key public health measures. Many countries in Europe and elsewhere have demonstrated that it's possible to bring large outbreaks under control. In both of these first two situations, where countries have effectively suppressed the virus, leaders are opening up their societies on a data-driven, step-by-step basis with a comprehensive public health approach backed by a strong health workforce and community buy-in. The third situation we are seeing is countries that overcame the first peak of the outbreak, but having eased restrictions, are now struggling with new peaks and accelerating cases. In several countries across the world, we are now seeing dangerous increases in cases and hospital wards filling up again. It would appear that many countries are losing gains made as proven measures to reduce risk are not implemented or followed. The fourth situation is those countries that are in the intense transmission phase, phase of their outbreak. We're seeing this across the Americas, South Asia, and several countries in Africa. The epicenter of the virus remains in the Americas, 
where more than 50% of the world's cases have been recorded. But we know from the first two situations that it's never too late to bring the virus under control, even if there has been explosive transmission. In some cities and regions where transmission is intense, severe restrictions have been reinstated to bring the outbreak under control. WHO is committed to working with all countries and all people to suppress transmission, reduce mortality, support communities to protect themselves and others, and support strong government leadership and coordination. Let me be blunt. Too many countries are headed in the wrong direction. The virus remains public enemy number one. But the actions of many governments and people do not reflect of this. The only aim of the virus is to find people to infect. Mixed messages from leaders are undermining the most critical ingredient of any response, trust. If governments do not clearly communicate with their citizens and roll out a comprehensive strategy focused on suppressing transmission and saving lives, if populations do not follow the basic public health principles of physical distancing, hand washing, wearing masks, coughing a ticket, and staying at home when sick, if the basics aren't followed, there is only one way this pandemic is going to go. It's going to get worse and worse and worse. But it does not have to be this way. Every single leader, every single government, and every single person can do their bit to break off chains of transmission and end the collective suffering. I'm not saying it's easy. It's clearly not. I know that many leaders are working in difficult circumstances. I know that there are other health, economic, social, and cultural challenges to weigh up. Just today, the latest edition of the State of Food Security and Nutrition in the World was published, which estimates that almost 690 million people went hungry in 2019. While it's too soon to assess the full impact of COVID-19, the report estimates that 130 million more people may face chronic hunger by the end of this year. There are no shortcuts out of this pandemic. We all hope there will be an effective vaccine, but we need to focus on using the tools we have now to suppress transmission and save lives. We need to reach a sustainable situation where we have adequate control of this virus without shutting down our lives entirely or lurching from lockdown to lockdown, which has a hugely detrimental impact on societies. I want to be straight with you. There will be no return to the old normal for the foreseeable future. I repeat, there will be no return to the old normal for the foreseeable future. But there is a roadmap to a situation where we can control the disease and get on with our lives. But this is going to require three things. 
First, a focus on reducing mortality and suppressing transmission. Second, an empowered, engaged community that takes individual behavior measures in the interest of each other. And third, we need strong government leadership and coordination of comprehensive strategies that are communicated clearly and consistently. It can be done. It must be done. I have said it before, and I will keep saying it. No matter where a country is in its epidemic curve, it's never too late to take decisive action. Implement the basics and work with community leaders and all stakeholders to deliver clear public health messages. We weren't prepared collectively, but we must use all the tools we have to bring this pandemic under control. And we need to do it right now. Together, we must accelerate the science as quickly as possible, find joint solutions to COVID-19, and through solidarity, build a cohesive global response. Science, solutions, and solidarity. I thank you. Thank you, Dr. Tedros. I will now open the floor to questions, but would first like to remind you we are translating this simultaneously in the six UN languages, so you can ask your question in any of those, plus you can ask in Portuguese. You may listen in Hindi. Um, for Arabic, you will need to go to Japanese, to the Korean button under the quirky Zoom system. For right, we have a lot of people on the line. My apologies, I don't think we'll get to everyone, but we'll do our best to get all your questions. The first uh, reporter I have with a question is Sarah Newey from the Telegraph United Kingdom. Sarah, please unmute yourself and go ahead. Hi there. Uh, thank you so much for taking my question. Um, it's about the WHO mission that's in China. Um, just a quick one, how long are the experts there for? But also it's been reported in some press this morning that the team is not planning to visit the Wuhan Institute of Virology. I just wondered if you could expand a little bit on what they're, what they're doing there and whether you've ruled out any potential um, that the virus doesn't have links to the lab. Thank you very much. Um. I can speak to this, Maria will maybe uh, fill in more detail. I, I think I've uh, outlined this last week. Uh, this is a preliminary uh, advanced team uh, that's uh, there to work with uh, Chinese scientists and others to uh, lay out what the, uh, the main uh, questions and what the approach and what the studies that are going to be needed by a much larger international team that will work in collaboration with the uh, Chinese colleagues over the coming weeks and months. Uh, I think it's important to uh, be clear on the expectations for this preliminary mission is uh, two of our best scientists uh, joining our country team, but joining with uh, Chinese colleagues to lay out that uh, we don't expect to be uh, at this point carrying out direct field investigations. Uh, this is not the objective of this preliminary, 
preliminary mission. This is to, to understand what uh, has been uh, discovered already, what has been studied already, what the data that's available, uh, and then from that to lay out what further uh, studies need to be carried out and what uh, international experts would be useful in uh, engaging with and partnering with uh, Chinese colleagues in order to, to do that. Um, uh, the length of the mission will be uh, determined by the, by the, uh, the demands and, and, and getting to that point, but it's also important to note that our, our two uh, colleagues are actually in quarantine at the moment, which is a standard operating procedure from, uh, from the Chinese side. Uh, and as such are already working with NHC colleagues, the National Health Commission and Ministry of Science colleagues uh, in a remote way, uh, being supported by our country office. So the team already working, but working remotely because uh, they're in quarantine. And uh, we will keep you updated on progress with the preparations for the international mission and on preparations for, uh, for that and uh, who will uh, will travel and, and, and will be part of that mission in due course. Maria, you may wish to just lay out some of the issues and complexities of uh, studies uh, and investigations like this. Thanks, Mike. So yes, I mean, when, when uh, WHO participates in missions like this, um, a lot of what it starts with is listening and learning, you know, from our national counterparts. I've personally been on several missions for WHO um, related to different emerging infections. And if, if I just think back to MERS, for example, it took us more than a year to identify the intermediate host, which are the dromedary camels. Um, but on these types of missions, what, what we do is we listen, we learn, we understand what has been done so far so that we can uh, work with counterparts and with international partners to lay out what needs to be done in terms of what studies need to be done at the animal-human interface. Um, usually what we would like to do is, is have a better understanding of the initial cases that were reported, uh, what, what were the types of activities that were done, um, and then outline studies that need to be carried out. And those studies take time. But before you can design studies that need to be carried forward, you need to understand what has been done uh, already. Um, and so this team will be uh, meeting with the counterparts in China, um, with different ministries, um, likely with different academics and scientists to really determine what has been done to lay out the plan going forward and to plan that larger mission. Thank you very much, Drs. Ryan and Dr. Van Kerkhoff. Uh, the next question comes from Agnès Pedrero from Agence France-Presse. Agnès, please unmute yourself and go ahead. Yes, hello everybody, do you hear me? Very well, please go ahead, Agnès. Okay, thank you. Um, I would like to, to ask you, maybe I can ask it in French, I'll ask the question in French. Euh, voilà, les États-Unis ont officialisé la semaine dernière leur euh, retrait de l'OMS et je souhaitais euh, savoir comment l'OMS euh, allait affronter l'avenir et euh, si le docteur Tedros euh, avait appelé le président américain euh, et voilà, s'il lui avait parlé et euh, qu'est-ce qu'ils avaient échangé à ce propos. Merci. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for that uh, question. I think we have uh, said, uh, responded uh, previously on the same question. And we will respond maybe if there are additional uh, issues from our side uh, when we get the formal uh, letter. We haven't received the formal letter yet. Thank you. Yeah, and if I could maybe just add that the, the teams here at WHO, uh, our teams around the world in 100 and 
41 countries, our six regional offices, ourselves, our hundreds of collaborating centres around the world, our partners in Gorn, our partners in science all around the world. We are focused 100% on uh, controlling this pandemic, on reducing, as the DG said, reducing mortality, suppressing transmission, uh, building strong community responses to this and, and, and assisting governments with strong coordination. That is our laser focus right now. We're also dealing with many other situations around the world. We're dealing with the situation in Syria, which many of you have seen, uh, is deteriorating. We're dealing with situations in Yemen. We're dealing with uh, <coughs> um, other epidemics like uh, Ebola, again, in Equatorial province of Congo. We're dealing with plague in Ituri and Congo. We're dealing with many, many, many emergencies around the world. That is our focus, and uh, we trust that we will be able to continue to work in scientific collaboration with our wonderful collaborators in the United States uh, in the coming months and years. Thank you, Dr. Tedros and Dr. Ryan. The next question comes from somebody who knows what it's like to battle this virus firsthand. The good news is this is Cameron Kasimov, who was in hospital and has now recovered and is at home. Cameron, please go ahead. I'm very glad to hear you're well, and please ask your question. Can you hear me? Yes, we can. Please go ahead. Hello. Yes, I got COVID-19 and 12 days I was in hospital. It was very hard days for me. And I would like to take an opportunity that the Azerbaijan doctors from here, don't leave Azerbaijan doctors. Dr. Tedros, I would ask to you, well, antibiotics cannot kill the virus completely from my practice. And even a person who infected with the coronavirus and the card, is, is it possible him to catch the virus again a second time? Thank you so much. Thank you. Um, Maria will speak to the, uh, the detail on this. <clears throat> we don't know yet whether it's possible with this particular virus, whether the virus, uh, once you've had an infection and recovered, whether one can be infected again. We do know with other coronaviruses that that is the case. Uh, and there is some data out there that may suggest that immunity will wane uh, over time. But that is uh, not fully known at this point. Uh, Maria may have more data on some recent studies that are pointing in that direction. Yes, thank you for the question. And, and, and first of all, we're really happy to hear that you're out of hospital. Um, and, and thank you for sharing your experience. We are learning from a lot of people that um, their experience with COVID is a challenging one, even if you have um, not the most severe disease, but even with mild disease, we know people are, are going through some challenges. So, so uh, well done on, on getting out of the hospital and to so many who have, who have been able to get out of hospital. Um, so as uh, uh, Mike has said, um, we, do, we don't have a complete answer yet, but we do expect that people who are infected with the SARS-CoV-2 virus, the virus that causes COVID-19, they do mount some level of an immune response. And this is measured through the antibody response, whether these are neutralizing antibodies, and we're learning quite a lot about a T-cell response, uh, which are very difficult studies to carry out. Uh, what we don't know is how, how strong that protection is and for how long that protection will last. Um, and so there are a number of studies that are underway uh, that are trying to answer these questions. Um, there are some initial studies out of uh, three countries in Europe that are looking at antibody levels over time, suggesting that they may wane after a couple of months. But again, that's early data, and so we really need more studies to better understand this. Um, from our experience with uh, MERS and with SARS-1, uh, the, the virus that 
um, spilled over in, in 2003, we know that people could have an antibody response for maybe a year or even longer. Um, but with the human coronaviruses, the ones that circulate regularly, it's much shorter than that. So um, it's an incomplete answer because we don't have that answer yet. Um, but there are many scientists that are currently studying this that are trying to give help, help us better understand how long that protection will last. Thank you very much. And I should tell everybody that um, Dr. Sumia Swaminathan has joined us, uh, joined us as well. So my apologies for not mentioning that earlier. Uh, so our next question comes from Hong Kong, from Simone McCarthy from the South China Morning Post. Simone, can you unmute yourself and go ahead and ask your question? Yes, thank you so much. Can you hear me? Very well. Please go ahead. Okay, great. I, I know that the, um, that the scoping mission to China has already been addressed once in this briefing, so I'll keep this quick, but I was just curious to know if there was any way to provide further information about which experts were on the ground in China going through quarantine, um, or perhaps why that information isn't being shared. Thank you. The, uh uh, we don't uh, generally announce the, the, the names of our staff who go on, on mission in, in the field um, uh, for no other reason other than uh, they, we just want them to get on and do their work, but uh, we can certainly uh, share their, their, their names with you. All I can assure you is one of the experts is a, a long-standing expert in the animal-human interface and has been involved in multiple investigations in the field of animal origin studies and the other is uh, a very accomplished uh, epidemiologist uh, who comes from uh, from, um, from UK academia and uh, public health and uh, is uh, was one of the leading uh, well has led many many epidemiologic missions but his latest mission was in leading the analytics cell in the field in the Ebola response in in, uh, in North Kivu and uh, so both have direct and recent experience in dealing with complex epidemiologic investigations and animal-human investigations in the field. And uh, we wish them luck and all the support they need in order to prepare for, the, for, for a larger mission. Thank you, Dr. Ryan. Uh, the next question will come from Christine from ABC News uh, USA. Christine, please unmute yourself and go ahead. Hi, Christine Theodoro, ABC News. I wanted to ask a question about transmission among children. From the last notes I have, the WHO reported children seem to be less affected, uh, experience mild disease, and are less likely to show clinical symptoms. You had previously said that children are susceptible just as adults and can transmit, but from some of the household transmission studies, excuse me, you were looking at, it was very rare that a child infects an adult and you were trying to better understand when people are infectious, how people are infectious, and how do you measure that. Today, we're seeing a report from Chief Health Officer in Victoria State, Australia, warning that extensive testing in the state revealed child-to-child -child transmissions are, quote, more apparent than they first thought. And in the US, as you know, there's an intense debate around that's ongoing around school reopenings. We wanted to ask if there's updated guidance for the WHO on child transmissions, whether that be child to child or child to adult. Thank you in advance. 
So I can I can start, and perhaps uh, uh, Mike would like to supplement. So this this is a very important question, um, and this is one that that has been on our radar from the beginning, of course, and looking at transmission as well as severity. And so what you had said about um, children tend to be less affected in terms of being reported as cases that is true, um, representing between one and three percent. Uh, in some countries, up to five percent of the reported cases um, to to WHO. Um, there are some seroprevalence studies that are being conducted that are looking at antibody response in children, um, and there are a few studies that are coming out now. Again, they're not all peer-reviewed publications, but some of those are preprint. And what we're seeing from them is that children do seem to be, um, we need to break down what children mean. The youngest children under 10 years old, for example, versus children over 10. Um, and it depends on how the study broke down age. Uh, some of them range from 5 to 9, some of them range from 10 to 14. But what we're seeing is that children in the youngest age groups um, have a lower seroprevalence, and those that are above 10 seem to have a similar uh, seroprevalence to those that are among uh, older, uh, young adults and, and uh, above 20 years old, um, which means that they can be infected, which we've said from the beginning, um, but they do tend to have more mild disease. Um, in terms of transmission, there is quite a lot that we still need to understand about transmission in children. Um, many of the schools and many of the countries that impose these public health and social measures or so-called lockdown measures did include closing of schools, although not all did. Um, and we're learning from some countries, you know, as they're opening up some of those restrictions. We have heard of some outbreaks in schools, uh, mainly among, among the older children. Um, but again, there's a lot that we don't know about uh, transmission among children. Um, with regards to schools uh, and advice on schools, WHO has issued guidance on the safe running of schools um, and making sure that certain measures are in place. We've also issued guidance on when schools, uh, considerations of when schools can reopen, and that takes into account a lot of different factors that decision makers need to take, uh, whether it relates to the transmission that is occurring in the local area or the catchment area of the schools, the type of school structure it has, the ability for the school to have these implement, to, to be able to implement the measures like physical distancing, hand washing, et cetera. Um, and so there's a number of considerations that need to take place. Um, but as you highlighted, um, children do seem to be less affected, but they can be infected. Um, and that is important. Our understanding of transmission in children is still limited. Um, and we know that overall they tend to have more mild disease, but in some situations they can have severe disease and we have seen uh, children that have died. Yes, uh, um, thank you very much. Uh, that uh, says it all. Uh, I, I think uh, we've been around, if we cast our minds back over the last couple of months, We've had uh, healthy debates and uh, around everything from long-term care facilities to transmission in dormitories to transmissions in airplanes to transmission on public transport, uh, healthcare settings to workplace and now schools. Um, and Maria is absolutely correct in that we don't fully understand the, the full contribution of children to the overall epidemic. The fact remains that when community transmission exists and when community transmission is um, intense, children uh, will be exposed to that virus and children will be part of the transmission cycle. They will be exposed, some will be infected, and they may infect others. 
What we don't fully understand is the impact on those children in the long term. We know in the short term they tend to have milder infections. We don't know the impact in the long term. And we don't know to what extent they pass that infection on and infect others. But we do know that that can happen. So when we look at that and we can have the same issues when it comes to the workplace and we talk about employees in the workplace and we talk about uh, long-term care facilities and health workers in the facilities and older people and visitors and to what extent do visitors bring the disease in or to what extent do health workers uh, participate in transmission. And all of this is in the setting of what's happening in the community. And in communities where transmission has been effectively suppressed, where countries have been successful in driving down transmission of the disease across the board, then you reach a point where everything is safer. The problem we have in some countries right now is that it's very difficult to determine the safety of any environment because there is just so much transmission going on that all potential environments in which people mix are essentially uh, problematic. And that's a problem. We've all paid a heavy price. Countries around the world have gone into very serious movement restrictions, stay-at-home orders in order to suppress the virus transmission. And as countries have opened up, in some countries the suppression of the virus has been kept in place. Uh, countries have opened up carefully, sequentially, in a stepwise fashion, and have strengthened their public health architecture and have strengthened their capacity to investigate clusters and suppress the disease, and in some cases, implement subnational or targeted measures at movement restriction or stay-at-home orders. Um, and in that case, schools are part of that. So yes, there is an issue around how much and to what extent children participate in transmission. There are real issues around how schools can be reopened safely, but the best and safest way to reopen schools is in the context of low community transmission that has been effectively suppressed by a broad-based comprehensive strategy. We can't move from let's deal with the schools and then we all deal with that for a week or two and then let's deal with the workplace or then let's deal with infection in hospitals or long-term care facilities. This is playing whack-a-mole. We have got to focus on a comprehensive long-term strategy that focuses on everything at one time. We've got to chew gum and walk at the same time. And we keep and pulling ourselves down various rabbit holes. Schools are a, are a hugely important part of this. They're a hugely important part of our social, educational architecture. They're the baseline of our civilization. Um, and, but we can't turn schools into yet another political football in this game. Uh, it's, it's not fair on our children. So we have to look at this carefully in the light of the transmission in any given country or any given setting, and we have to make decisions that are based on the best interests of our children, be it their educational or their health interests. And that must be based on data. That must be based on understanding the risks in the specific setting in which schools are. What is the community transmission and what are those risks? Um, and my fear in this is that we, we create these political footballs that get kicked around the place. And it, it's, 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 for me, we need to get back to what the Director General has just spoken about. Comprehensive strategies, sustained commitment to broad-based virus suppression. If we suppress the virus in our society, in our communities, then our school, schools can open safely. And there are many countries around the world in which schools are reopening successfully and safely because countries have dealt with the real problem, community transmission. So I would advise us all to look carefully at schools. We will continue to, I think we have a technical advisory group meeting coming up, Maria, we want to speak to that. We're bringing experts together from all over the world once more 
to look at how we uh, manage and open schools in a safe and effective way. But please, let us not turn this into yet another political football. I add that we have a, a technical advisory group that's been pulled together to advise on us on educational institutions, specifically around how we do this safely. And it's a, it's a global collaboration. There's a, there's a large number of scientists that are helping to advise us on this. We have our second meeting this week, um, and is, that is something that we have specifically pulled together for this, um, because it is such a complex issue, and it is such an important issue for all of us. Thank you very much, Drs. Ryan and Drs. Van Kerkhoff. Our next question comes from... Catalan from Nazare Romero from the Catalan News Agency. Nazare, please unmute yourself and go ahead. Hello, uh, can you hear me? Very well, please go ahead. So uh, thank you very much for taking my question. I'll ask in Spanish if I may. En los últimos días hemos visto cómo se han detectado nuevos brotes en Europa, por ejemplo en España. Y quería saber si les preocupan estos nuevos brotes en Europa, donde la situación parecía estar más bajo control que en otros sitios del mundo. Y también quería saber cuáles son sus recomendaciones cuando se detectan brotes locales, si recomiendan medidas de confinamiento o cualquier otra medida es mejor. Muchas gracias. So thank you for the question. Um, I think this is exactly what the Director General was speaking to today. Um, and we spoke at our last press, press conference about this and that in, in many countries that have been able to suppress transmission, there is always the possibility of resurgence. Um, and what is really important is that the countries that have used this time and have, have spent the time to build this public health infrastructure, the workforce in place, the surveillance in place, the strategies in place, um, to act fast when there is a, an upsurge in cases, whether it's a small cluster or whether it's something that has an outbreak that has started, the, the opportunity is to act fast and to apply the same comprehensive approach, informing your, your public, saying where this virus is, what are we doing to suppress it, what role you can play as an individual, what role we are playing as, as leaders to be able to bring these outbreaks under control. And I think that if the ability, if the, in, infrastructure is in place, if that workforce is in place, to find cases, test cases, isolate cases, uh, carry out contact tracing, quarantining contacts, um, and putting in place perhaps some restrictive measures in a localized area. So not go into the full-on nationwide lockdown, but to really apply measures at the lowest administrative level as possible to help support the outbreak response. That is something that we see going forward. Um, where that can be done in a data-driven way. So there are opportunities to suppress these outbreaks, these resurgence and these pockets of activity very, very quickly. And we're seeing a number of countries really be successful in doing that very quickly. But it takes a surveillance system in place to rapidly identify um, the cases so that you know when you need and where you need to act fast. Thank you very much, Dr. Van Kerkhoff. Our next question comes from China, from Ye Li, uh, from the Xinhua News Agency. Uh, please go, unmute yourself and please go ahead. Okay, thank you for taking my question. Can you hear me? Very well, please go ahead. Okay, good afternoon. Uh, we, we, I have a question about the origin of the uh, virus. We noticed that last week, no, 
the last week before last week, Spanish researchers tested coronavirus in wasted water sample of March last year, after the Brazil experts announced the similar findings. So based on these findings, an Oxford expert on, pointed out that the coronavirus may have been lying dormant across the world until emerging under favorable conditions, so rather than originating in China. So uh, I know we have asked such kind of questions before, but I, want, I wonder what's the new learning or understanding of WHO on this issue of wasted water? Thank you. Um, I, I, certainly uh, surveillance of waste water uh, is a, a really good way at looking sometimes at the long-term epidemiology of any disease. We, we use uh, uh, surveys of wastewater, for example, to track poliovirus around the world, and it's a very effective way of knowing where a virus is and what circulating strains are. We've certainly seen the same for cholera and other diseases. So the, the, the environmental surveillance in general is a very, very useful way to supplement human surveillance when it comes to the understanding of disease. And we congratulate our scientific colleagues for, for using those methods and innovations to look at the potential that, uh, that uh, this disease was, was present earlier than may have been previously suspected. But um, when it comes to investigating human disease, uh, and the Director General has spoken of this many times, you, you, you need to go to the epicenter and work from there. We're very, very clear. Uh, the hu first human cases of this disease were picked up in Wuhan, the first clusters of disease in Wuhan, China, um, and, uh, and then subsequently uh, spread from there. And that is where the starting point lies for uh, a, a full understanding uh, of the origins of this virus in the animal kingdom. Um, and the animal source or the, the intermediate host have not been determined. Uh, we, we assume the primary host is a bat, but certainly that's uh, also to be uh, fully determined. But uh, that is the, the, the source of the human cases or the first evidence of human cases. The question remains then, what, was the, what were the incidents or incident that allowed the transfer of that disease from animals to humans? Where did that occur? Uh, and that uh, uh, can occur in the area in which the first human cases are noticed or can occur uh, far away from there. We've certainly seen in Ebola and other diseases that the first human cases can be unnoticed and then by the time you pick the disease up, it's already somewhere else. And that's been very often the case in Ebola. The first cases that are noticed are in health workers. Well, we don't assume that the bats came and bit health workers. What usually is the case is that there's a trail of cases going back over some time and at some point uh, historically, there was a transfer of disease from the animals to humans. So it is a detective story in that regard, and you have to go where the data and the science leads. We keep saying we have to follow the science. And when it comes to understanding the origins of disease, you have to follow the science too. And it's really, really, really important that uh, ultimately, uh, and I'm sure our Chinese colleagues are doing this already, they have tremendous capacities for disease investigation and scientific uh, understanding, uh, that we start where the disease began in humans or where the first cases of disease occurred in humans. And we work from there and we keep an open mind. And it's really important that we keep an open mind. But you can't close your mind based on one or two other findings elsewhere. That, that, that becomes a distraction. Uh, and again, you end up uh, being led down, the, down different uh, alleyways that, that, that are not helpful. The data 
and the evidence should lead where it leads. And this investigation and uh, understanding of how the disease transmitted and where and by what animal did this disease breach the barrier to humans needs to be understood. It's extremely important that it is understood. Uh, and that investigation and that un scientific understanding uh, should uh, start uh, at where the first clusters of human cases uh, were detected, and that's in Wuhan in China. Maria? Okay, thank you. Oh. Thank you, uh, Mike. Sorry, Maria. So I, I, I have another commitment, so I will leave you with my colleagues, uh, Mike, and Maria, and uh, Somia, and uh, hope uh, to see you in our uh, next session. Thank you. Yes, so just, just to supplement what Mike has said, it, it's, it's, it, it is as he said, we, we listen and we learn, we see what investigations and studies are underway, we look what surveillance has happened, um, and we follow the science. And so it is a bit of, of detective work in that sense where you're, you're following the clues. Um, and there is quite some work to be done. I mean, if you think about the identification of SARS, the first SARS virus, it took, it took over a year. If you look at MERS, uh, it took years. If you look at MERS, uh, that took us over a year. Um, so it does take some time. So I think we need to manage the expectations about finding the, the intermediate host um, and how that takes place. But I think what is important is that there is this global collaboration. There's a whole network of scientists that exists globally, including scientists from China, across the US, across Europe, across many different countries, all continents, that always look for these emerging pathogens. Um, and so there's a large amount of work that's underway. We will follow the science. We are open uh, to following that. Um, and I think we are all committed to find the intermediate host because of its public health importance. Knowing what the intermediate host is will help us to prevent this from happening again. Thank you very much, Dr. Drs. Ryan and Dr. Van Kerkhove. The next question comes from Nairobi from Sarah Joving uh, from DevEx. Sarah, could you kindly unmute yourself and please go ahead. Thanks for taking my question. Um, is the incubation period and the time frame in which a test result would return positive the same? Um, would someone need to wait the 14 days after exposure to feel comfortable that a test result is accurate? And is the incubation time frame still believed to be a maximum of 14 days or could it be longer? So I can, I can start with that. That's quite a few questions in one, actually. Um, so well done to you. Um, so yeah, so the incubation period is, is, is the point of time where somebody is exposed to the point of time where they develop, those, develop symptoms. And it's believed to be between one and 14 days. There are always exceptions. We should say that. There's always exceptions. But the majority, uh, the average, is between five and six days. So most people will develop symptoms within five to six days. Um, your question about the testing is, is a good one um, because we often get questions in terms of our testing strategy of when is the most appropriate time to, to test someone. So what we do within our, our, our case definitions and our recommendations is to test somebody when they develop symptoms. However, saying that, we, do, we also recommend contact tracing. So people who are contacts go into quarantine, which means they're essentially removed from, from other people so that they can't pass the virus on. Um, and some of those contacts are tested. They are tested when they develop symptoms, but some of those individuals are tested when they don't have symptoms, which is why we're seeing some asymptomatic cases being detected. 
Um, if that testing is gonna be done, um, it should be done before that 14 days is up. Um, but it does depend on a lot of characteristics of what type of test is done, what sample is collected, whether it's an upper respiratory sample or a lower respiratory sample. So there are a lot of different factors that are, that are in play uh, when it comes to when is the most appropriate time to take a sample from an individual. Uh, just to, to point you well, I mean, uh, the, uh, there's some excellent publications out there around issues like this and around broader issues, but there, there is a very good publication in, the, in JAMA this week, which is a review uh, of all of the key parameters around the disease, like transmission and incubation and, and prognosis and so many other factors, the epidemiology, and if there is uh, probably one, uh, it, it may be a little complex scientifically in part, but for, the, for journalists out there who really want to get an overview of much of what we know right now globally around the disease, uh, Wersinga et al. have a, a very good paper this week in JAMA, which kind of goes across the whole range of what we know about uh, this disease. Uh, because I think we've, we said it here last week, we're all in a deluge tsunami of scientific publications. And sometimes uh, when scientific colleagues uh, synthesize that, into something uh, a bit more manageable, it makes uh, it makes things uh, much easier. So I just point you to a pub publications like that where you can pick up a lot of information regarding what we know in a more synthetic fashion. Very, very helpful indeed. Thank you, Dr. Ryan and Dr. Van Kekoff. No, okay, great. Uh, so our next question comes is for Imogen Fuchs of the BBC. Imogen, can you unmute yourself and go ahead, please? Hi, uh, Margaret, thanks very much. Um, it was primarily a question for Dr. Tedros, but Mike and Maria, I think, yeah, I'm sure you can answer it as well. Um, Dr. Tedros said the Americas remained the epicenter of the pandemic. Um, and I'm just wondering, looking at the, I mean, really big increases in cases that we have seen, particularly over this last weekend, on a public health basis, what's gone wrong and what needs to be done as a, as a matter of urgency? Um, if we I mean, look at the, the Americas as a whole, uh, I think both, and the DG alluded to this, uh, in many circumstances, uh, countries made some progress in suppressing transmission. But certainly the reopenings in those countries have led to more intense transmission. Um, and uh, now a, a number of countries face a scenario in which there's increasing and sometimes exponential transmission, a very difficult situation to face. Um, and not necessarily with the option to impose these uh, so-called lockdowns again because of the economic damage and the community acceptance of those. But as uh, Tedros said, there is no situation which cannot be uh, faced, and I think this is the issue, is to turn and face the fire, turn and face the problem, um, and uh, accept that it's going to take time, it's going to require a huge commitment on the part of government and individuals in a number of countries to turn this around, and it's not just government, it's individuals, the choices we make, I think I spoke about that last week, there are choices that we all make that can either increase or decrease the risk of transmission. But there are choices that governments make that can either increase or decrease the risk of transmission. We need to re-establish trust, uh, communication, uh, and strong uh, government-led strategies 
uh, that can uh, turn this around. Uh, some of that may require limited or geographically focused lockdowns uh, that uh, suppress transmission in specific areas and where transmission is frankly out of control. But that is not the case in all places. All countries in the Americas have areas in their countries in which transmission is at a reasonably low level. Um, but some areas uh, in almost all countries have areas of uh, intense transmission. And in those situations, uh, absolute individual and community adherence to social distancing, hygiene, the wearing of masks when appropriate, all of those different things. If everybody uh, does that, then we will suppress transmission, avoiding crowded places. But if people continue to frequent crowded places without taking the necessary precautions, if people aren't practicing physical distancing, if people aren't practicing hygiene, if people aren't wearing masks in the proper settings, then the disease will continue to transmit. Uh, at the same time, uh, governments have to support communities in that, and governments have to be, again, uh, Tedros spoke to it very clearly. We need to be absolutely clear and consistent in our messaging to our citizens, and it's got to be easy for citizens to comply. It's got to be facilitated, uh, and it's got to be supported. So, and within all of that, as we get control back of the disease, and I can't say this strongly enough, the countries that have put in place strong public health surveillance architecture while they've been dealing with their lockdowns are now emerging from those lockdowns in a stepwise fashion and they're replacing lockdowns with strong public health capacity to detect, to test, to quarantine and to treat cases. And countries that have taken that path are having relative success in continuing to suppress the virus. But as I've said here before, we need to learn to live with this virus. Expecting that we will eradicate or eliminate this virus in the coming months um, is, is not realistic. Uh, and also, uh, believing that uh, magically we will get a perfect vaccine that everyone will have access to is also not realistic. Uh, the history of vaccines are that we, we can and will develop a vaccine. The question mark is, how effective will that vaccine be? And more importantly and more worryingly, who will get that vaccine? Um, and will that distribution be fair and equitable? But as uh, Tedros has said, there are things we can do now. There are tools we have at our disposal now. Uh, if we apply them, and if we apply them systematically, and if communities and individuals uh, buy into that and trust that their behavior uh, will be supported by government and we can work together collectively to drive down and suppress transmission. The positive news in this is that in many countries, death rates uh, have fallen. And we are getting better at treating cases, we're getting better at diagnosing cases early, uh, and we need to continue that. Uh, we need to suppress mortality, suppress transmission, we need to support communities, and we need clear and strong government leadership. And that doesn't matter where you are, but that's all the more important in countries that are now suffering uh, very, very exponential transmission, which is very, very worrying. Thanks, Mike. I want to speak to the individual. So as Mike has said, it, it's, it's not only about leadership, it's about individuals and what individuals do. And, and everyone, everyone on the planet needs to know what role they have to play and to be informed about what this virus is, where this virus is circulating, especially in the areas where you live, the areas where you work, the areas that you want to travel in. All of this is important. There's so much that you can do yourself to protect yourself from getting infected and to prevent yourself from passing the virus onto, onto others. Um, and please make good choices. Um, I know that there are a lot of things that we want to be doing right now, but there aren't necessarily a lot of things that we need to be doing right now. 
there are many people, many people, essential workers who cannot stay at home. There are many people who are caring for patients in hospitals who cannot stay at home. And if you can, and if you can help, and if you are asked to, please stay home. You can practice physical distancing from others. You can avoid crowded places. You can avoid places that have uh, enclosed settings that have poor ventilation. You can clean your hands. You can practice respiratory etiquette. You can wear a mask if you cannot do physical distancing. There are so many things that you could be doing, talking to your children, explaining to them the risks. Everyone has a role to play. And, and this is far from over. So we all have to play our part. Thank you very much, Drs. Ryan and Van Kerkhove. We have time for one more question. He's been waiting for a long time. And so he gets the last question. It's Jamie from Associated Press, Jamie Keaton. Jamie, please go ahead. As I came, Margaret, my question was for Dr. Tedros. Thanks. Okay. Well, um, Dr. Ryan's got an update on Ebola because last week we promised that we would give those that updated situation. So, Dr. Ryan, please go ahead. Yeah, this one goes out to Helen Branswell. Sorry, Helen, the dog ate my homework on Friday. Uh, uh, I'm, I'm back, uh, suitably contrite. Uh, as of the, uh, the 12th of July, we've had uh, 48 confirmed cases and, and three probable cases reported from Ecuador province in the north uh, western DRC. Uh, we've had 17 uh, deaths of confirmed cases and uh, the three, three deaths of the three probable cases, uh, 11 survivors. Uh, we've had 21 affected health areas in six health zones in Ecuador. Um, uh, and that does, while the numbers are low, uh, that does represent a broad geographic extent of the virus. And, and that is of a concern. Uh, while the numbers are, are quite low in each health zone, any one of those uh, individual um, uh, cases can result in, in amplification of disease. Um, in terms of the areas that are affected, uh, uh, there are uh, five uh, zones that we've had cases in the last 21 days, and most of the zones, in fact, uh, have had a case in the last uh, seven to 10 days. So we're still within that incubation period for another wave of cases uh, in, in, the, in the zones of Bicoro, in Balumba, in Iboko, in Lutumbe, and uh, in Bandaka itself. In terms of the uh, age and sex distribution, uh, males uh, predominate amongst the cases. Females represent 43% uh, of cases, and um, children less than 18, 6% uh, uh, of, of cases. Um, in terms of the epidemiologic links, at the beginning of the outbreak, as is normal in many Ebola outbreaks, it's difficult to make the association between cases because uh, the, uh, sometimes there are, are, are difficult exposure histories, and particularly when people have already died. But um, at present, um, the, um, the documented, uh, at the beginning of the outbreak in the first week, 75% uh, of cases had no documented epi epidemiologic link. Um, from the 29th of June to the 5th of July, 33% had no documented link, but all cases in the last week have had documented uh, ep uh, um, epilinks to other cases. That's good news. Uh, the, 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 the difficult part of that is that the proportion of people who are registered and followed as contacts is, uh, is less than half. Uh, and that means that you know half of cases are not being actively followed as contacts when they're diagnosed. And again, while the numbers of those are very, very small, uh, that is uh, um, 
is, is not a good parameter. And again, in terms of uh, deaths at community level, uh, where we've seen uh, uh, nine deaths uh, in the community, again, uh, they all represent uh, opportunities for disease uh, transmission. Uh, at the moment, uh, as of July the 11th, we're tracking 5,580 contacts across a very, very large and difficult geographic zone with extreme logistics. Uh, we've managed on a daily basis to follow uh, 4,977 or 89%, nearly 90% of those contacts are followed uh, on a daily basis, um, which is uh, good performance in the context of the the, the extreme logistics in the area, but it also means that 10% of contacts are not followed, and, and that in itself uh, is a concern. Um, the, uh, in terms of community alerts, we're investigating or detecting about between five and 600 alerts at community level every day. Of them, 25% are validated as suspect cases, um, and, uh, and then, uh, then those individuals are, are tested. Um, uh, there are uh, still challenges in testing. Uh, we've very recently established testing capacity in Bacora, which is uh, to the south. So we now have testing capacities in, in all of the affected uh, health zones. Um, and we have clinical capacity with partners in all of the affected health zones. Uh, just to say that the, the distances, the logistics, and the demands on all of the teams, the ministry teams, the partner teams, uh, and WHO teams are, 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 are extreme. Uh, it is not uh, the same context as North Kivu. Uh, we don't have the same, necessarily the same security issues, but we do have a very, very demanding logistics and distance and living conditions for, for staff and the condition of the roads, etc. Uh, we've uh, vaccinated thousands of people uh, with our vaccination teams and uh, we're very lucky to have that uh, and th those vaccination teams in place and uh, equally so therapeutics are in the field and now being actively used uh, to treat cases. The R0 um, uh, for the last two weeks of June was 1.7, which means you know, technically each case is generating more than one other case. So this is still an active, very active outbreak. Uh, and I would say it is still a great concern. Uh, the Ecuador province is on, um, on the River Congo. It is also across the river from two other countries. It is a very, very large geographic area. Communities are linked and people do travel long distances. So there are a number of features of this epidemic that are of concern. Uh, very much thank the government of Congo for its leadership, the partners in the UN and the NGO system for the support they're providing. But I would uh, caution everyone that uh, while the numbers in this event are low, uh, again, it's in the era of COVID, it's very important that we do not take our eyes of these other emerging diseases uh, and we saw in North Kivu and in other previous outbreaks of Ebola that these can get out of control uh, very easily. Uh, we're very focused on continuing to support the government of Congo in, uh, in eliminating Ebola once more uh, in this situation. Thank you. Thank you very much, Dr. Ryan. And with that, I'll close this press conference for today. We'll send the audio file uh, as usual uh, to the globalist and the next a press conference will be on Friday. That's Friday, the end of this week. Talk, we'll look forward to speaking with you then. Goodbye.